my question as a historian is actually one about power itself. Is this really challenging the core power relationships, or is it just reproducing them in another form? In today's episode, we'll discuss history, at a time when many of us are realizing that the history books we thought to be objective have been wrong. I spoke to Mark DeVoe, a Gen Xer and public historian working on a crowdsourced digital archive documenting the pandemic, as well as Ziad Ahmed, a student and social justice activist at Yale University who founded a marketing agency to help companies understand how to engage with Gen Z. I chose to speak to Mark and Ziad because they're people from two different generations deeply involved in storytelling and archiving. Mark collects people's story as part of a public archive, while Ziad considers social media to be an archive in and of itself. As a society working towards progress, how we examine history today determines how we imagine a more equitable future. Together, we tackled questions like, how do you make sense of this historic moment we're living in? What does it mean to openly share personal stories in privately owned online spaces? Which narrative should we give power to while keeping compassion front and center? I'm Jesse McGuire. Thank you for listening. Let's get right into it. Mark, why don't we start with you and just give us a little bit of background, introduce yourself to Ziad, and, uh, and we'll get started. Hey, Ziad, it's nice to meet you. Um, so we had just started talking a little bit about your graduating next spring in the midst of a pandemic and just beyond the one-year anniversary. One of the things I've been working on is a digital archive called the Journal of the Plague Year, an archive of COVID-19. And it's a, I'll give you a kind of a quick technical definition, which is really less important than what we're doing. It's a rapid response digital archive that solicits stories and contributions from communities to tell us about the nature of the pandemic. We have probably 200 partners worldwide. We're getting stories from across the globe. We've had, I think, something near 11,000 contributions from 9,000 individuals. I think we may even be the largest digital archive of the pandemic in existence. This project originated with an email from my colleague, Catherine O'Donnell, on March 13th, Friday, by the way just a couple days after the WHO announced the global pandemic. In her email, which was titled, A Journal of the Plague Semester, the idea was to build a community that helped us make sense of this moment. And in that idea, the, the archive was born. And it follows a long tradition among historians and digital historians in a community in which I situate myself of doing this works from the 9-11 archive forward. So that's just kind of the overview. But in that moment, you saw her naivete and our naivete, the journal of a plague semester. This was going to start in March and by you know, May, even though we all were historians, we should know better that pandemics are not things that just start and then disappear, right? It has grown into this kind of all-encompassing moment for us. And we've struggled trying to uh, address archival silences to just thinking about the nature of the pandemic and its changing nature. And one of the things, I guess, just as a kind of, uh, you know, that, that sentiment of, I hope you have a normal graduation, what does normal look like? And will it ever be the same? Are those are some of the questions we're thinking about, including how does an archive like this come to an end? When is the pandemic over? Is it the moment we get vaccinated in mass? I don't know. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Thank you. Like I said, the the work you've been doing, I'm so fascinated. And I know we have lots of questions around how and who you've been getting stories from and how to tap different generations. So excited to dig in. And Ziad, why don't you give us a little background of the all the work you've been doing and especially over the past past few years. So yeah, so I mean my mind is already buzzing with a million questions and and and, and thoughts regarding, you know, this moment that we're living in and, and how we make sense of it. And you know, never did I expect to be a 21-year-old CEO student amidst a pandemic and a recession and an uprising against systemic injustice. But here I am, right, trying to make sense of all of that as an American Muslim, as a progressive, um, as a person trying to be a decent person. And my story sort of starts, you know, in, insofar as Grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, which I consider to be the greatest town on earth, where I am right now. You know, grew up as an American Muslim and, you know, was really taught to ask hard questions about the world, right? At the end of eighth grade, founded a nonprofit called Redefy, which is a bi teens, for teens social justice advocacy group that creates resources and information to make communities and schools more equitable and inclusive. I had no idea what I was doing when I started, but, you know, saw problems in my community and wanted to do something about them and to create more empathy between my peers. Through that, found myself in rooms that I never could have imagined, you know, at the White House with industry leaders, et cetera, where I realized how often young people are spoken about but not spoken to. And so my junior year of high school, I founded Juve Consulting with this idea being that people shouldn't be talking about us, they should be talking to us. And that the world looks better when diverse young people have a seat at the table. And so for the last five years, I've been building Juve with the most extraordinary team of humans in the world. And we work with clients to help them better create and Product campaigns and ideas that actually resonate with us by working with us, right? by working with diverse young people, and we're a purpose-driven, you know, community of young people um, that is trying to do things differently. And so now, today, I spend most of my time doing school, of course, and I'm a senior and about to finish up. And wish me luck. And I also, you know, run the business, and that's what I spend most of my time doing and building Juve and trying to make impact where possible. And then I also certainly have my hands in other projects, you know, trying to engage. Advocacy work, right, and, and spending my privilege where I can to show up for the things that I care about, uh, and and as always, you know, thinking about how technology, how culture is changing, and I, you know, I study that at school, and I focus my research on social media's impact on policy. You know, I'm taking courses right now called like technology and culture, and you know, trying to understand this moment that we're living in through this lens of how is technology changing and how is culture changing as a result of it, and so that's a lot of where my thoughts are right now is thinking about those questions. But I mean, long story short, you know, I'm, I'm a 21-year-old trying to figure things out and do the best that I can and excited uh, to, to dive into this conversation and see where it may lead. You both can see why we, we're excited to pair you to to have this conversation and, and really dig in. So one of the first questions that's been on my mind, especially Mark, after, after we spoke is just, and you both touched on it, we know we're in a historic moment. We know we're in the middle of a global pandemic. We're in this sort of surreal lockdown. It's everything is uh, sort of turned upside down, but we're seeing institutions such as libraries, museums, universities, uh, having to address the urgency of archiving, of actually thinking about artifacts and personal stories and thinking about crowdsourcing. And I know that's a lot of, a lot of your work. So I wanted to ask both of you, what does the present moment teach us about how important it is to record these memories? So one of the things I've noticed in our archive, and I'm going to kind of pose a question because that I'm curious about to Ziad which is uh, one of the challenges that we have, not just with young people, but it's surely true with young people, is how do we empower people to record and share their own stories, right? To me, that's this 
800-pound gorilla in a digital archive is how do we get people to take that step, right? To feel like their voices are important. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess for me, you know, I, I, you know I, I go to school, I take school seriously, but, but I don't know that I'd consider myself an academic. And so I, I consider social media to be an archive in and of itself, right? So when we're talking about how are young people, how are diverse young people chronicling this moment, right? And, 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 and journaling their experiences and sharing that with the world, like we are organically through TikTok, through Instagram, right? Through our social medias, like if you go on TikTok right now, so much of the content is certainly about processing, right? The pandemic around us and all the current events around us, right? On any given day, if your For You page is about what's happening in the world. And it is young people creating in response to what is happening in the world. And so I think this idea of archiving, right, of journaling, of chronicling is intrinsic to the Gen Z experience because that's what the social media era has allowed us to do. We chronicle everything, right? Hanging out with friends, right? Right, like experiencing the world around us. And so I think that through different mediums and through different platforms, we're absolutely synthesizing and processing what's happening, but doing so in perhaps not very academic ways, right? With sort of like a hypothesis and tests and whatnot, uh, but certainly in a really organic human way, I would say that myself and my peers have taken to poetry, have taken to TikTok, have taken to platform um, to, to try to, to try to process what's happening around us. Well, so that I, I would totally agree. Like we see the social media outpouring, but these aren't public spaces. They're privately owned. They're corporate spaces, right? So when we put our stories on Facebook or Instagram, right, which is yeah. owned, I think, by Facebook, we're giving them to um, um, one of the largest corporations in the world, right. which has no interest in in saving them, right, or mm. yeah. or, or doing actually much of anything with them except uh, turn, you know, using them to sell you things, right, monetizing your yeah. self that you're creating, right. So we know that. So from a kind of scholarly side of things. We have two dilemmas. The first is, if you put it out there, can we just take it? It's not obvious ethically that that's yeah. the reasonable yeah. thing to do, because then I'm just appropriating your story without yeah. letting you know, right? And that and that is historically yeah. embedded in power relations, where white guys like me take the yeah. stories of people of non-whites, non-elites, right? So on the one hand, there's some ethical questions. But on the other is it's just it's too massive even to try to do informed consent. So we're trying like so one of our challenges is how do we get people to redirect some of that into our public space, which we know is sustainable, which we know will go down for posterity and help people make sense of it. And then there are TikTok and Snapchat, which I have kids that are Gen Zers, too. So, you know, I it's like, like, so my, you know, my son is always doing this thing with Snap. Yeah. Those are totally ephemeral. I would love to save those. Yes and no. Yes and no. They're not totally ephemeral. If you save it to memories, it will remind you about it a year later. Um, not, not everything is quite as ephemeral as we make it seem. But I think that you're, you're posing a lot of really important questions, right? But I think that conversation to me is the largest tool that we have to, you know, balance the playing fields in a lot of ways. And so I think what it looks like is DMing people being like, hey, I love that video that you created on this topic. Could I add it to my archive that I'm building on this you know, topic and on this moment, right? And I think that oftentimes the scholarly community and the academic community, right, or in general communities, allow ourselves to feel so far away from each other when we can bridge that gap and by including each other more in the conversations that we're having. And so I think that if the scholarly community were to invite 
you know, more diverse young people into the conversations that we're having around what is this moment and how we're making sense of it. And can we use some of the content that you're making and creating to help tell the story so that when, you know, generations look back at this moment, that we can look to the content and the stories that you're telling and say, this is how people process what we're living. I think that's a really powerful partnership and conversation to be having. Right. And I think that that isn't happening enough. And I don't think that, you know, many of the young people who make content on TikTok or any platform think of themselves as like, you know, storytellers who are, you know, historians. But in so many ways that history will look back and say, you know, you told the history uh, of something that generations after us will spend decades studying. Right? How did education and young people adapt this pandemic that has transformed everything about society? And I think by allowing young people to see that content creation is not just content creation, it is, you know, the chronicling of history. It is the creation of culture, right? And allowing us to talk in those senses and to empower us in our voices, I think is a really powerful discourse to be having and one that isn't happening enough. And so what does it look like to create conference and space to hold that intention and to have those conversations, I think could be a really powerful way, you know, to, to do this sort of work. One of the one of the really exciting things from a historian standpoint are memes, right? Which yeah. a classic example of what you just described. They're the ways we have often dark humor about these, you know, just uh, awful moments we're seeing in our lives, right? From you know the kind of more mundane loss, but mundane loss is sometimes as significant as more profound uh, loss. And so those memes tell stories. And from a historian standpoint, we don't have memes or jokes from 1918, right? People didn't sit down in their... You, you, you might in their private journal. No, but people don't journal. They don't, that's not what they do. Sit down and say, oh, I heard these great six, here's some six one-liners I heard yeah. today about the, the, the great flu, right? Instead, you know, they, those go undocumented. And we've found that memes tell a really powerful yeah. story. And, and especially it's young people typically that are creating yeah. and moving them in space. What I what I always say, right, is that Generation Z is the generation of memes and movement, right? And it's two <laughs> sides of the same coin. The fact that we are memeing, right, and developing our own vernacular, which is oftentimes co-opted by queer and Black spaces, but, you know, communicating in unique ways, right? Whether that be through memeing or, you know, language or through, you know, new platform. We are creating culture. You know, old people always like to say young people spend too much time on our phones. And what are they doing on their phones? Well, that power that we've amassed through memeing, et cetera, allows us to instantaneously change popular culture, to shift public discourse on really heavy topics like you're talking about, right? Like memes have now allowed us to synthesize presidential debates, right? Like the way that politics in this country, you know, in, in, in popular culture in this country works oftentimes and in this world, not just in this country, right? People know that people are not going to watch the whole live three-hour thing. They are optimizing the content for that meme to be made so that they can get the maximum amount of impressions on what they're trying to message out, right? And so meme culture and stan culture has transformed, right, how content and storytelling is happening and has also now allowed young people to allow our disruption to become mainstream instantaneously, where it takes one tweet to bring down a fire festival. And so through one tweet, through one meme, we can shift the conversation on things that millions and billions of people are talking about in real time. And what an enormous right, responsibility, but also power right, that is for young people to be able to wield and yield. And I think that it's you know an incredible moment in history that in the last year, especially the world has become so much more digital, that Gen Z's power relatively has gotten even bigger. Right, because we are the predominant voices on digital spaces, and the ones who are 
creating and setting meme culture and stand culture, et cetera. And so subsequently, all the other generations are basically now coming into our spaces more and more, whether that be TikTok or otherwise, and learning from Gen Zers and only flipping the script, right, on, hi- on hierarchy in many ways, because we are the experts in many of these digital spaces who are now leading culture forward, which I think is a phenomenal flipping of the script that I think history will also have to, you know, study to consider what that means for culture uh, going forward. Yeah, I have a slightly different take on that, Please. which is I I think of these as corporate spaces first and foremost. I do not see Gen Z challenging those kinds of core power structures. And it's also the the social media battle in the in the last election was not won by the left. It was won by the right, right? In this extraordinary outpouring of viciousness, right? That's generated yeah. a variety. And, and I'm going to talk about it in the context of the archive in a second, but it's generated this extraordinary counter narrative. It's not just a counter narrative, it's a counterfactual counter reality yeah, narrative, right? That extraordinary numbers of people seem to have fallen into, right? We have Parler now, like, you know, what do we do with Parler? Which I just read the other day is not just this right wing space. It's become, because it's the Wild West, a pornographic space, right? So it, it has a whole other set of peculiar values that are expressed yeah. in there. From our archives perspective, though, it raises this question about who really has power and how are we compassionate in creating the archive? How do actually, both compassionate to people who believe in hoaxes or are skeptics, how do we identify what they're saying? Do we identify it? What are the ethics around putting the voices of a MAGA mass demonstration, anti-mask, anti-election protest next to a story of a family mourning the loss of a loved one, right? I yeah. mean, I just kind of lumped a bunch of things together, but I don't think Gen Z is winning the battle. I think actually Gen Z is, to use a Marxist term, getting some false consciousness going on. I'm curious about accuracy and accountability, because I feel like there is an interesting conversation to be had, and I know Ziad, I agree with you that we're seeing these platforms and the ability for young people to put their stories out there. But I think, Mark, you make a good point that they are corporate, and they are private, and we are having conversations about who has that accessibility and who makes the calls for what is open source and what's not. And then also with accuracy, right? We're seeing who is actually controlling what people are able to see and not see. So I'm curious, Ziad, because I know you have something else to say, but like what your thoughts are on private companies' accountability and accuracy and how we control for that. Because I feel like from an academic standpoint, those conversations have been had. Yeah. Look, I I don't think these things are mutually exclusive from one another, right? I think both of these things can be true simultaneously. I think that it it is certainly true to say that these private companies and these social media platforms have so many, so many systemic problems, right? And whether you have watched The Social Dilemma or you're just a casual user or whether you study this academically, it is apparent that Massive things need to change in regards to social media, in regards to the algorithm, in regards to empowering diverse users, in regards to not uh, perpetuating fake news, you know, creating spaces where discourse can be had, right? There, a lot needs to change. However, that can exist simultaneously with the fact that Gen Z and diverse young people have been empowered by these platforms, right? And me being here right now is testament to that. 
right? Like there weren't 21 year old CEOs, right? And massive social movements started, you know, that have, that have like marched for our lives and Greta Thunberg, right? And et cetera, where young people got this much platform and audience, right? So quickly without, without social media, social media has allowed, you know, young people from all around the world, whether that's indigenous climate activists, or Black Lives Matter activists, or Me Too activists, or so many change makers to make their voices heard and to build community and to build solidarity and to create movements globally, right? Connecting the struggles of liberation movements from country to country and building capacity together. And what a phenomenal time to be alive that that is possible, that it is possible for young people to create companies and movements, right? And conversations. And yes, within confines of deeply flawed and perverse spaces, Often, but that's no different than government. Government is perverse and flawed, but we still hope that there is representation, that young, diverse people hold power in those spaces because we want to trigger change within the institutions that we do have. And so I view social media as a deeply flawed institution, much like I do government, but one where I want young, diverse people to still exercise our power, to make our voices heard. And I think that we are doing that. And certainly we are living in a time characterized by misinformation and characterized by polarization. Right. But I think that studies have shown that young people are less susceptible to misinformation than, you know, boomers and older generations because we are more critical media users. Right. And are more media literate because of the fact that we have so much media that we're looking at. And so we have a stronger bullshit filter because we know what a spam email looks like when my grandma might not. Right. And so we are more able to discern what is true and what is not true. That is not to say that we're not, you know, victim to misinformation and, and to polarization. Of course, we have been and are in many moments. But I think that there are concerted efforts to make us more media literate. And I think many of us are looking at multiple, you know, sources. And I have seen my generation, especially in the last year, and, you know, talking about the, you know, the results of the pandemic, become more educated and more energized. Right? The same kids who scoffed at me in high school for caring about social justice are now marching alongside me at protests, but in many ways, you know, pushing me, right? And so I think our generation is moving and, and is changing and is learning. And it isn't to say that we don't have these problems and they are big and they are vast and these social media platforms need to change. And this misinformation and accuracy you know, problem is not a small one. And, you know, I've written papers on like, what would it look like for an NPR, but for social media where the state funds, you know, a public social media platform, et cetera, because the monetization incentive of social media platforms has created a space where we are not empowered as users, right, to have discourse that is constructive, but are instead you know, put into ideological silos, we're more likely to engage with content. And these are really dangerous truths, right, that define our digital atmosphere that need to be disrupted. But I think that, you know, TikTok is a really interesting platform because you see content from people you don't follow, right? And so on TikTok, especially, I've seen a lot of really fascinating discourses and conversation between people who disagree with each other, right? And we, many of us are following the same influencers, right? And culture is changing in a really fast way, especially in the last year. And look, I'm, 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 I'm scared for lots of reasons of our future and of the digital world, but I'm also optimistic, right? And I, and I believe in the endless capacity of my generation to make change and inshallah, God willing, we'll make it. So a lot to respond to there, Mark. I'm curious. Um, well, well, let, okay, go, go with your question. No, I mean, I, I would love to know, again, what were your reaction to some, some of what Ziad said? I also am curious because I know that there is a hurdle that academia and, and even you, I think, mentioned with archiving and getting young people to want to give those stories. But it's almost like reframing how and why you are using those stories versus what Ziad is saying, which is people are just putting it out there. Yeah. So so the, even the rhetoric of influencers or the kind of radical individual empowerment that happens with social media and that rhetoric 
is actually just capitalism 101, right? You know, a generation that's transformative. Well, Mark Zuckerberg, right? He sits in a dorm room, does some coding, and he amasses great individual wealth at the expense of monetizing everybody else. I mean, there are really wonderful spaces out there. Take Ancestry.com. I'm a member, right? But Ancestry.com monetizes my family tree. That is an appropriation of epic proportions. And it's not just old people who enter their stuff in and kind of give the give corporations that power. I mean, you remember this great 1984 Apple commercial where the woman who was in a sort of uh, tight but colorful outfit throws the hammer at the screen. Well, I feel like we're in that moment now where we have to throw the hammer at the screen to challenge people to think more critically about where and how they share, to think more critically about what collective action means. It's one thing to become an influencer, right, which benefits you and a set of brands that you that monetize your being an influencer. It's quite another to build a movement in which you're arguing for radical empowerment, say, around climate change. I mean, the truth of climate change is the world is getting warmer. We've probably crossed the point of two degrees or whatever it is. That number is going to keep rising. And I have yet to see in 10 years of watching activism anything that amounts to meaningful change, right? And so my question as a historian is actually one about power itself. Is this really challenging the core power relationships, or is it just reproducing them in another form? I'm a tech evangelist. I've made my career, you know, doing digital and history, right? So, like, I'm I'm totally with you, Ziad. I'm I'm a, I'm a proponent of this, but I just I also think we need to ask these hard questions because if we're not, then we have a generation of people who have a kind of belief they're transforming the world when in fact they're just you know, they're just moving their weight to the side of the boat until it capsizes. The question I keep coming back to as I'm listening to both of you is, Mark, how do we bring these stories as an empowerment and the change that Ziad's talking about? Because that's not going away into the public space so that we are archiving it and we are documenting it and we are building on it. Because I feel like if in some ways, if the public space can't take that momentum and that movement and the, as you said, uh, yeah, the memes and the movement and actually help us all understand how to build on it. Like we're just going to be stuck in this corporate, these corporate cycles. Yeah. So, so this is, that's a great question because to me, this is, this is the tension at the heart of this. And this is uh, at the heart of actually the pandemic. It's the heart of digital culture. And when you put the pandemic and digital culture together, you know, it's exacerbated, which is for a very long time, we've had a decline in public space, right? There's a 1972 decision, Thurgood Marshall essentially says, what happens to our public culture if private actors are allowed to set the limits on speech, right? And it's really a prescient decision. It's, you know, it's 30 years before the digital age, but it actually speaks to the digital, right? We live our lives in increasingly disconnected from one another, right? The, there was a movement back towards center cities in the 2000s, right after the Great Recession, but that now it's reversed itself. It's going to the suburbs. And we're seeing that as people move further out from cities again. So kind of just in our daily lives, these public conversations are fewer and fewer, right? Social media and digital media kind of accentuates that. We're, we're kind of hanging out with people like ourselves. Of course, net neutrality is you know, a separate issue altogether. But, but, and then, okay, so just kind of take that as a long-term trend in the kind of physical structure of our lives. And we see 
protest changing, right, in that context. But the other change in the pandemic is the pandemic, by definition, forces us apart, right? We're social creatures. It pushes us apart. But we've embraced the digital to come together, right? So we're all we're doing this on Zoom yeah. rather than live in a studio in New York or somewhere. And so, so to me, this both of these trends are highlighting. And the question is, how do we get people to reinvest in public life? And this actually is the kind of fundamental thing we're getting from the right is an attempt to get people so skeptical of public life, meaning the state and the power of the government to change, to create change, and this just kind of endless assault on people who work for the community interests. How do we get people to reinvest just in the public? I mean, just the idea of having a neighbor, of you know, connecting to one another. And that's a, an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk because, you know, as a young person, and I think, you know, most of the young people around me, I don't know that we view the private and the public to be such a rigid dichotomy. Or I don't know that we view TikTok as like not the public, if that makes sense, right? Like, you you are absolutely right, right? That it's obviously, you know, a corporate platform and, you know, money is being made on and et cetera. But that isn't that that isn't necessarily how it feels um, as a user, as a consumer. And that can be part of the false consciousness that you're talking about from an academic perspective, but, you know, from a purely like, anthropological perspective, I'm thinking about, you know, like, what does it feel like, right, to be a part of this, right? Like, I think that it's interesting, because I think to even to consider investing more in public spaces would require an education on what it means to be public or private, and would require a reimagination, right, of what private and public even mean within the context of a digitized world. And I don't know that we are there yet in having that conversation academically or socially or culturally or otherwise. And I, and I wonder what it would look like have that conversation and I even struggle to imagine. I, I wrote a paper on what you know what it would look like for the government to sponsor and create a social media platform, much like they have NPR, right? It's not like that it's run necessarily by the executive branch, but it's funded by sort of independently operated, et cetera, PBS or an NPR. But what does it look like for social media? It'd be a massive, you know, multi-billion dollar effort, but perhaps is necessary if we consider social media a public good. And if we consider social media a public good, and, and or, or rather information a public good, and we recognize that the current free market right is underproducing quality information, then it ought to be the role of the government to course correct, as we do with minimum wage or anything, when the market fails us, right? public education, et cetera. And it is clear that the market is failing us when it comes to delivering quality information at mass to citizens, because right now we are living in a time characterized misinformation and fake news and otherwise. That said, it is also a really dangerous thing to consider what happens if the government has the tools to control the information that the entire country is looking at, right? And so then this becomes like, you know, a push and a pull. And, you know, I consider this all in this paper, but like this, con- this, this, this conversation that we're having is making me reconsider some of my, you know, arguments in the paper in regards to like, do, is it necessary? You know, what would it look like? Is that the solution? And, and I, th- I think it would be a worthwhile investment. I think it would be a very expensive investment, but I think it is much like PBS is expensive but necessary. I, I think this would be even more essential given, I think, how much our platforms are letting us down right now. But I wonder to you, like, would that suffice what you are craving for you know, a public space to engage in these conversations, to archive, et cetera? Because I, I, I can't think of another alternative beyond that. So I'm curious to hear if you have thought of other alternatives beyond that. Well, so I mean, to me, the one one of the key alternatives is to return people to the physical universe, right? To to get them back into public spaces themselves. University campuses are the kind of classic example. You know, university campuses are rich public spaces, even at private institutions. 
they're largely public. There's a kind of public space going on. But they've become, what makes what makes a private university different from you than TikTok? Well, so a private university, right? The, the the university can tell you what to say or not to. Like a private university can restrict the behavior of people on yeah. its campus. But in a public university like Arizona State, that can't but what, happen. But what I'm so saying, like, you said you said a private university is a sort of public space, right? Well, so, no, it is because of the values that go with university culture, right? So actually, I was glad that Twitter started censoring. The president's God, tweets, of course. thankfully, Necessary. right? Yeah. And yet, and yet, delete his also, account. Delete his account. Yeah, exactly. I'm all. I'm. I'm entirely like sympathetic to that. Except in a world with kind of a more of a public sensibility, right? We we create that kind of public space, which is the origins of the middle class itself. Is in these kinds of public space and basic literacy. We don't necessarily tell the person. So who's standing up shouting on the soapbox, we don't put a physical sign under them and say, you know, take with a grain of salt, this guy is telling you a bunch of crap, right? We recognize that the, we're somehow competent to confront the failings of that speech. So I'm a little, I'm a little disturbed by Twitter imposing, like as, as happy as I am, I'm a little disturbed by them imposing a, a standard on that. I just think the conversation has to move beyond the internet in some ways and, and be manifest. But do you think that's, do you think that's realistic? Yeah. I, I think it has to be realistic, right? If we want to make change in the world, right? The globe is, war- the physical world is warming. Like we can all feel good about confronting it, but if it keeps warming, we have to do something, right? So we have to somehow move but Do that. you think public discourse will ever not be defined by the digital world? Like I think that public, like I think that- uh, at scale, like what you're talking about is a, is a local is a, is a local community. There, there's no conception of physical space that isn't tied to locality, right? Because you have to be able to have proximity to whatever you know physical space that you're convening, and that inherently is counter to a globalized, digitized world that we're living in and that we're moving towards. And so, do you think there is, there is a realistic pathway? towards moving away from the globalized and the digitized towards a local and physical well i don't i don't know if we've we've invented it yet but we've got to get into that space right we've got to be able to move people from the digital into activists local news for example has disappeared right it's horrible local news has been has and truly uh and truly thoughtful local news has been dead for even longer, right? Because yeah, it was just corporatized, now, yeah. right? And so the, the digital has created these networks of information. So how do we turn those that into kinds of conversations that enrich our local lives, right? And how do we persuade people you know, to change behavior rather than just share a video on TikTok? I think we're all great storytellers. I sometimes wonder if then we put those stories that we're telling into action, right? I think that where, where I, you know, as, as a non-academic, as a student, as a young person, I sometimes feel as if, you know, the questions you're asking are really smart ones, but until we have good answers to them, like, what are we supposed to do? But you have to come up with the answer. <laughs> like, you can't leave it to me or Mark Zuckerberg to come up with the answer because we're fossils, right? Honestly, right? We're no, and not so, and, future, so, and so, and right? I'm trying to, in my answer, right, right, is... For the time being, if these spaces, these digitized spaces, these flawed spaces are going to exist, let them be 
led by diverse young people, people of color, queer folks, et cetera, right? Let them be diverse. Let them be interesting. Let them acknowledge the inequalities that exist in the world and try to try to spend our privilege. And as a person of privilege, spend my privilege to show up in these issues that I care about. And then just try to create, to use the spaces that we do have to make them better and to include more voices. And in the long term, you know, I believe in electing people, you know, like I was a Bernie Sanders supporter, et cetera, right? Who push our government and push, you know, our companies to be far, far, far better, right? And to prioritize the interests of the people over profit and et cetera. And I think, you know, simultaneously thinking about solutions like, you know, a publicly funded social media platform or the like, where um, we are able to have an alternative to these private spaces that still allow us to, you know, use our digital world to communicate with each other. And I'm not, I'm certainly not opposed to, you know, a reinvigoration of local, public, physical spaces and community. Hard to imagine in a pandemic that is hard to imagine even disappearing and hard to imagine in a world, you know, where so much of where I have lived and grown a community and made friends is digital. But certainly I think there is something really powerful about knowing your neighbor, right? And yeah. really powerful about convening physically and et cetera. And, and, and I miss it desperately, right? And we're seeing all these companies be like, we're going to work from home forever. And I'm sitting here thinking like, that's like, I would, I, I want nothing less, right? Like I want physical and I want community. Um, and I, and I hope that it's possible that we can return so, some of that, but I don't know. So Ziad, one of the things that I saw there was just what you just said reminded me of about the pandemic and the tr- and the MAGA voter, right? Is that there the MAGA voter tends to be an older white person with fewer social connections. The lack of social connections is presumably what unmoors them from reality. They're not connected to institutions. They're not connected to other people. So in a way you know, coming back to this kind of intergenerational conversation that we're having here is how do we draw those people back into a conversation with young, diverse people so they suddenly see the world doesn't look just like them? So one of the things that oral historians have long argued is that when we do an oral history, especially with people whom we disagree or may find objectionable, say I'm interviewing someone from the Klan, right? How do I actually honor that person in the interview, right? That's actually a really hard thing to do. Um, and one of the I, I can't is, even like no. I'm like my, right. my my only thought is just like no, like <laughs> right. Like, it, it, except that we have to document the moment to understand it, right? That's our kind of obligation. We I can't, mean, I'm not a historian. That's I, I mean, I'm glad I'm not a historian. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I don't. I like where I come from in my work. Like, I am not interested in giving platform towards any opinion or towards any position that dehumanizes someone else's existence. Well, so, and like, so, we, and so I can we, talk to people I disagree with, but not people that de- dehumanize anyone well, else's existence. So we are by definition an activist archive, the journal of the plague year, right? So we, our goal isn't, we don't imagine ourselves as neutral, right? Because we just can't. I don't think it's, neutrality exists. Yeah, exactly. And so by record, by identifying our, we believe the pandemic exists. We believe not, uh, we should collect stories. Oh, okay. I don't believe that's, politi- that's not political, though. No, but it is political in the present era. And the, but one I think of the even value- referring to it as that validates the misinformation and gives it power that it should not have. By succumbing to the prevailing rhetoric that it is political to wear a mask, we allow that position to have power that it shouldn't have, right? Like being anti-mask, being pro-conspiracy theory is not like, oh, in balance, both of these sides need to be heard. Like one is just misinformation bullshit and one is fact. And I think that we ought to use words that acknowledge fact because when we start, right, both sides in it, 
to conspiracy, we give power to conspiracy. The corporate news tends to do that. We're just identifying that we're identifying that these other views exist. And the question for us is how do we incorporate them? And it's not an easy thing to do. But it's also important to us to have this value of compassion, right? A recognition that here are people living a moment. And in fact, the very first protests that came out of the pandemic were not Black Lives Matter, which obviously, you know, became, has become the kind of signature protest for so many reasons, including its size, but were in fact what I would call these kinds of liberty protesters. And what we discovered is that when we were writing, when we were putting those materials into the archive, we were less sensitive to the ethics of that when it was a liberty protester carrying a gun in front of a Michigan state house, which, you know, I'm not especially sympathetic to that politics. But when it was a Black Lives Matter protester, we were worried about, oh, do we show their faces? You know, what we were worried about, the ethics of making sure that we didn't help the state identify people who might be victims of the state. And yet the, that, that is equally true with the, these so-called liberty protests. Uh, I mean, the same ethics should apply to both. I know, but I don't think you're right that the same ethics should apply. I think that like, we should absolutely be much more conscious and careful about the harm, that, about how we're looking at the Black community's relationship to the state and the white community's relationship to the state. Like, we know that statistically, Black people are way, way, way more likely to be targeted by the state than white people for the same action. So I do not believe it is biased to have more thought and compassion when looking at those pictures. I think that it is historical. It is precedented, right? It is looking at the facts and saying, we know it to be true that we live in a militarized, racist, right, state that unfairly targets people of color, queer folks, women, et cetera. And we are going to acknowledge those power structures. Well, no, we we can do that. But at the same time, we have to recognize that if we apply a set of ethics in our archive, we should apply it to every entry, not just those that we recognize. I think that's morally absolutist. And I don't think that we live in an absolute world. If we lived in an absolute world, then I don't think police brutality would exist, right? We live in a relativist world. We live in a world where bias controls. And I think course correcting for that bias in our historic approach, right, in our archiving and saying, look, we acknowledge that if we put a picture of a black person, a picture of a white person publicly on our website or publicly out there, we are putting a person of color way more in harm's way than this white person because of the racism that exists in our world. And operating your research from that place of understanding and compassion, I think, is the right thing to do. But it's not to say that we don't have compassion for that. I don't think I said. I don't think I said that. I think I rather said that I owe the same ethical responsibility to everybody who contributes. Because I mean, we're an activist archive. That by definition, we recognize historical inequity, but we also recognize that other people who contribute we have a moral obligation to them as well. And we can't step away from that. That's a public- a moral obligation to every person? That's a public ethic, right? The state yeah. has a moral obligation to everybody in the state to equal treatment, regardless of whether they're objectionable or not But I think in their politics, the question... right? And I, th- that doesn't mean that it, the state doesn't have a special moral obligation to non-whites or those without power. No, I actually would argue exactly the opposite. But if you extend 
an obligation to one citizen, you would, by definition, extend it to everyone else. So when we say Black Lives Matter, what we also say is that the traffic stop on the country road in an unequal power relationship between a policeman and a white kid or whatever should also be governed by the same body cam, the same respect, that not the, you know, the kid getting beat beat up, right? Our our critique is that the state has had a different standard to women, to non-whites, to LGBTQ communities. We want to bring that stand. We have to change that period. But it doesn't mean we suddenly say it's okay to brutalize people who disagree with us. The most radical historic decision in a generation, as far as I'm concerned, happened in South Africa with Truth and Reconciliation, where the Truth and Reconciliation Commission looked murderers in the eyes and gave them reconciliation when they acknowledged their crimes. That is an extraordinary act of compassion. And I mean, how do you... Like, yeah. how do you tell a murdered family that we're letting the policemen who brutalize not just your loved one, but scores of other ones go because we value the civil society? That's an act of moral courage of exponential so I proportions. I don't know that I agree with you. So I, I don't know that I agree with you on a number of things. That's, not, right? that's South Africa in the 90s. That's No, no I, I mean, I know it happened. I, I just don't know that I'd consider it morally courageous, right? I would, I, you know, you said that, you know, you view operating within, you know, social media as, you know, false consciousness, I think that that's a form of false consciousness as well, right? I think that it's, 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 it's appeasing white supremacy for the state interest and for the, and to, and to appease the status quo and to minimize the amount of controversy. And I think that, you know, when you're talking right now about this idea of applying things equally, like, yes and no, right? Like, I think what we're disagreeing on is the difference between equality and equity right? Like affirmative action is absolutely the opposite of what you're saying, but I believe in affirmative action, right? It is saying that we ought to have a different set of criteria because we need to correct for historical injustice. And when the difference between equality and equity is you're saying, okay, everyone should have the same standard. Actually, no. Like, yes, body cam should be used in every, et cetera. But the onus is on the officer every single time to check their privilege, to check their bias, and to be more considerate and more thoughtful when it comes to treating, you know, a historically targeted community because they understand that they are responsible for a culture of fear, for a culture of violence right, that has meant that that person they're talking to is going to be way, way, way more anxious, way, way, way more scared, right? And and and, and when we're thinking about the difference between equality and equity, I think this is where Gen Z and you know, older generations maybe disagree a lot is we actually, I, I don't want a world where we don't see color. Right? I don't want a world where we're all treated the same. I want a world where our differences are acknowledged, are celebrated, but that we don't lose respect or rights or agency or access because of our differences. Right? And so the way that we get there is not by saying, oh, we're actually all the same. Let's treat everyone the same with the same set of principles. It's actually to say we're all so different and come from such different perspectives and come from such different experiences and subsequently. A greater level of thoughtfulness, of compassion, of consciousness needs to be included in every single interaction so that, like, you know, the equality equity argument, if I'm talking to somebody who's non-binary right, or uses different pronouns, it requires me to be extra conscious and extra thoughtful not to misgender them, right? But the onus is on me to do that labor because that is equitable, right? It would be equal to use the same amount of thought process to think about everyone's pronouns. But to be equitable, right, I ought to be more conscious, more thoughtful, right, and more communicative so that I respect the humanity of the person that I'm talking to.
you. And so I am. I, I'm not arguing actually yeah. against that. I'm rather arguing that there is, in order to reestablish a kind of. I mean, we started this conversation down the question of how do we move from individuated spaces and individuated conversations towards public and broader civic conversations. That may demand some compassion that we as people, it's, it's a difficult space, right? But we have to build the civil society as well. We need to address historic inequities. That's like a given. But then the second question is, how do we do it in a way that draws people into that conversation rather than starts them off like as the oppressor? So take our prototypical police officer, right? That police officer is often non-elite, has grown up in an entirely different world, has been trained in a certain way with lethality, and has been given a gun by the state, and has been over 50 years, the last 50 years, been given a set of cultural norms in which they can exercise their power in certain ways against non-whites, right? So how do we bring that person back into a community, right? We could put all the weight on them, but we're putting all of our weight on a $40,000, $60,000 a year employee who has a gun who, who is themselves often frightened for bizarre and unrecognizable reasons. So how do we build that conversation? And that doesn't mean we don't say to the person, you need to be conscious of historical inequity. We have to build, a we have to bring that person into the, back into the polity so that they so understand. I just, I, I don't know that. Otherwise I, that we I, won't get a solution. I, I just don't know that I agree because like the polity was created to appease that person, to include that person, right? Like, I think that this country is a country that was created to give space, access, voice to white men, to white property-owning straight men. And so I think that, do I believe that we should have space for everyone to be heard who is not spewing dehumanizing rhetoric? Sure, yes, absolutely. But do I want to sp spend my time thinking about, you know, how do I make somebody who already has had so much space right, um, in the public sphere, right, like, to say, like, oh, this person, you know, needs to be more included in the polity, et cetera, like, ignores that, I don't know what the number, people blue lives matter flags on their, you know, and I support police stickers, uh, right, all over, uh, um, right, and, 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 and police shows are celebrated on TV, right, and, and, you know, people, and, and they get, you know, saluted, and, you know, thanked when they're in public, and all of these things, and, and so much power has been given to them by the state, by mainstream media, etc. And so, to be like, you know what, I need to think about the few ways in which you don't have power, and then course correct to make you even more comfortable when we have huge, you know, communities, right? You know, Black, low-income, Hispanic, all of our energy and time should be thinking about how do we uplift those communities and include them in the polity, right? I, I, is I, I don't think it's an either-or in this case, as you don't, right? I think you fundamentally have to change the culture so non-elites have voice and power. Uh, can and can confront power, right? But I also don't necessarily view working class white folks as elites. You are correct; they have an extraordinary amount of unrecognized privilege. No. But but they are not elites, right? The, no, this this set of elite this elite discourse this prison discourse is a conversation that isn't happening just at the level of rank no, and of file police officers. They're inheriting 
a and narrative, I, and I don't right? So we have to challenge, right? So the I don't the defund the police notion is actually saying let the police do one job, and all of those other jobs, so mental health, et cetera, need to happen in some other way and be funded, right? And that communities of non-white, non-elite communities need to be treated entirely differently than they are. You know, three strikes and you're out has to be jettisoned. Unequal policing has to be jettisoned. Yeah. But we have, to, our allies in this struggle are actually the police, oddly enough, because it makes them, it makes their job easier, their lives safer. It creates a non-confrontational set situation, right? I think some certain things demand confrontation, right? And I also think neither you or I are the ones who get to decide this at the end of the day, though, right? Like, I am a person of privilege, right? I am not Black, right? I am not somebody who's been disproportionately targeted and attacked by the police and et cetera. And so, like, it is my job as a person of privilege to trust. But to your point, right, people from low-income communities, people who have dealt with the brunt of police violence and police conduct and et cetera, to say, what are the solutions, right? And so I am entirely pro, right? The movement for defunding the police and entirely pro, right? Reimagining what the state looks like, right? And thinking about how we build new systems. And I think that that oftentimes requires confrontation because I do not think that we got here in terms of the gains that we have made by just a kind and polite politics. I live, like I said, in Princeton, New Jersey, right? And 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 we don't have a massive police problem because we are a predominantly non-black, non-Hispanic, right, non-low-income community where there isn't that much policing and there isn't that much police violence and et cetera. And, and, and I have no idea, you know, what ought to happen, you know, in, in so many other communities because I'm not familiar with them. And so I think it's my job to listen and to learn. And I think that the digital space, you know, connecting back to the earlier conversation is what has allowed me to learn because otherwise I wouldn't know, right? If I just depended on the physical and local, I would never know, right? What it is, what is happening on indigenous reservations or what is happening right, in low-income Black and brown communities and what is happening in other spaces. But I've learned from people in their experiences and learned to have, you know, learned so much about the world and shaped my politic around not what's just how me and the people on my block, but the thousands of people I'm connected to online and thinking about how my voice and my vote is part of this much larger fabric of, of, of and, and country. And I hope to trigger change, not just for me and my neighbors, but for everyone. And so I think the digital world has allowed me to have so much more empathy and understanding about the world around me. And I think that it has been positive in my development and I hope for Gen Z's development to allow us to understand what other people are experiencing to follow their leads towards what is best for them in their community. Mark is a realist, while Ziad is an idealist. Ziad has done the research, but he doesn't seem to draw a hard line between public and private spaces. Young people like him believe that Facebook gives people a real platform. But in fact, from a legal perspective, it is not an open source platform. Myself and most people I know don't seem to realize the full implications of power held by the companies running these platforms. Many of us believe we are able to see other perspectives because of social media and that we don't require firsthand experiences with those people to understand their needs. Mark, on the other hand, prioritizes building more compassion and empathy with people in public spaces currently in decline and doesn't see social media as the solution. Clearly, we need to integrate both of these perspectives as we think more critically about where and how we share our stories while keeping compassion front and center. 